In Arizona, the 2020 presidential election didn't seem to end in 2020. Former President Donald Trump made the state that arguably launched his political career the location where he waged his last stand, at least so far. Ever since election night 2020, Arizona has seemed to be at the center of controversies and conspiracies. The state's unprecedented review of 2.1 million ballots in Maricopa County stands with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol as the two events that crystallized America's deep political divide. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez with Ron Hansen. If you're a regular to the show, you'll know we talked about Arizona's evolving status as a presidential battleground years before it was obvious to everyone. Over the next five episodes, Yvonne and I will do something a little different. We'll read you our new series on AZ Central and the Arizona Republic, detailing the origins and outcomes of the state Senate's ballot review. Think of it as the audiobook version of our stories. It also includes reporting from reporters Jen Fifield, Robert Anglin, and Mary Jo Pitzel. So, get comfortable and listen closely. You're going to hear about how Arizona's audit really unfolded. And you're going to want to take a look at AZ Central for lots of extras, from videos to documents to background stories on the whole thing. Rusty Bowers was talking on his cell phone to Karen Fan after church services on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, looking ahead to another hectic week. It was November 22, 2020. The counting was done and Joe Biden led Donald Trump by a razor-thin margin, but the presidential election results in Arizona still had not been certified. The state's House Speaker and Senate President have a bond that stretches back decades forged by family friendships. This time, the two Republicans conferred about something that surprised them both. Fan told Bowers that the president's allies had called her repeatedly. They wanted to get her involved in a plan to help deliver an election result more to his liking. By then, it was clear to most that Trump had lost his re-election bid for the White House and that Arizona had helped elect Biden. Seconds after Bowers hung up with Fan, and while he still sat parked in the driveway in his Toyota Prius, the dashboard on his car lit up. Bowers had a phone call. It was the White House. In a Bluetooth conversation that lasted several minutes, Trump and his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, noted their deep concern for what they viewed as widespread fraud and irregularities in Arizona's election. Giuliani said they had evidence dead veterans had voted, and illegal immigrants, and there were other problems, too. Trump and Giuliani wanted Bowers to help ensure President-elect Biden's 10,457-vote win in Arizona would not be formalized a week later. They told him, there's a way we could help the president, and that Arizona had a unique law that allowed the legislature to choose its electors rather than voters, Bowers recalled. That's the first I've heard of that one, a skeptical Bowers told them. He told the men he needed proof to back up their claims. I don't make these kinds of decisions just willy-nilly. You got to talk to my lawyers, and I've got some good lawyers. 
Bowers told them he supported Trump, voted for Trump, and campaigned for him, too. What he would not do is break the law for him. You are giving me nothing but conjecture and asking me to break my oath and commit to doing something I cannot do because I swore I wouldn't. I will follow the Constitution, he told the men. Trump, who was gregarious throughout much of the call, but quiet during that exchange, told Bowers he understood. Rudy, you've got to get him the evidence that he needs, Bowers recalled the president, saying. Trump told Bowers, we're just trying to investigate. Giuliani repeatedly assured Bowers he would send the evidence to attorneys at the State House of Representatives. The evidence never arrived, Bowers told the Arizona Republic. But Fan proceeded with the ballot review Trump wanted. This is how Arizona plunged into a fog of conspiracies, riven with partisanship and targeted by opportunists from across the country. Trump led the effort to undermine the results after some projected Arizona to slip to Democrat Joe Biden. The state was one of two targeted by congressional Republicans on January 6th who were willing to disenfranchise millions of voters in a brash legal experiment that would have redefined the election certification process. And even before Trump left the White House, Fan put in motion a ballot review. Of the swing states, Arizona perhaps was the most susceptible to an election challenge. Biden's margin of victory in Arizona was the smallest of any state he won. State government was in Republican hands, providing plenty of potential allies, from the governor to the leaders of the state legislature to the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. Trump, who viewed the focus on Russian interference in the 2016 election as an effort to delegitimize his victory, now heaped doubt on Biden's win. But Trump's loyal base didn't see how tenuous his hold on Arizona had grown. While Trump evinced confidence at rallies, behind the scenes, his campaign team knew the state was up for grabs. Trump's push to challenge the election results in Arizona provided balm for a man unwilling to accept defeat. It also sowed lingering doubt that would fuel an attack from people all over the country on the state's election systems. It had enablers inside the state and out. Many Republicans quickly joined Trump's unfounded accusations of fraud, some more forcefully than others. A few, such as Bowers and Governor Doug Ducey, resisted the public and political pressure to get behind the narrative of a stolen election. One Arizona member of Congress led protests outside Maricopa County's election facilities, even as ballots were being counted. Three GOP members of Congress from Arizona later voted to set aside the state's election results. The circus-like atmosphere drew Trump diehards, election conspiracy theorists, and far-right media that simultaneously created buzz and fed off it. It raised cash for Republicans and doubts for voters, threatening public confidence in elections here and elsewhere. Interviews with dozens of people connected with the drama at the Arizona Legislature and the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix, where the ballots were examined for months, make this much clear. The spectacle that unfolded here for most of the year was a partisan obsession pushed by Trump's close allies and made possible by just a handful of people in Arizona. It didn't have to happen this way. Before Fan ordered the ballot review, for several days in December, Bowers, 
Fan and the Republican chair of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, Clint Hickman, tried to reach a deal for a joint audit conducted by an accredited firm. Over the course of four months, the Republic examined a trove of text messages, emails, and court records, many made public after suing the state for access. Reporters spoke to decision-makers, consultants, staff, contractors, campaign aides, and others tied to the review of the presidential and U.S. Senate races. Some talked on the record about their experiences, while others spoke on the condition they not be identified in order to speak candidly about private conversations. The Republic uncovered efforts to circumvent the popular vote to engineer an illegitimate Trump victory. Once the results were certified, Trump and his allies shifted to a campaign to pressure local Republicans to overturn election results under a system shaped over decades by their own party. Trump and his close allies, such as Giuliani, Fan, and others who helped bring about the ballot review, did not respond to repeated requests to discuss their recollections of the events leading to the review. Bowers shared his story for the first time over three interviews totaling nearly six hours. The interviews took place by phone, in his office suite, and on the patio of a Cracker Barrel in the East Valley, where he verified key dates from his red leather-bound journal. Like most of Arizona, the speaker watched the scenes unfold from the periphery as fans steered the Senate into a probe led by the Florida-based Cyber Ninjas, a company with no prior experience in election reviews that is run by a man who publicly stated the election was tainted by fraud. Fan has not yet explained her U-turn, from favoring an accredited audit to authorizing a review led by partisans. Those who know her and did speak said she sought to quell Republican anger over Trump's loss and could not resist the pressure campaign from his allies and within her own caucus. Early on, Bowers remembered offering her a stark assessment. Some of Trump's most ardent supporters in the GOP-controlled legislature viewed Trump's election grievances as political opportunity. Karen, this is about trophies, he said he told her. This is about trophies on the wall that individual members want to be able to say, I forced them to do this. Before the Veterans Memorial Coliseum became the proving ground for conservative conspiracies, it was the location of a rally at perhaps the high watermark of Trump's presidency. The economy was in the final days of the longest expansion in U.S. history. Coronavirus seemed like a foreign problem in a faraway land. Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont who described himself as a democratic socialist, had won the New Hampshire primary the week before. Biden finished fifth. Trump's approval rating was inching upward after his acquittal in his first impeachment trial. So it was on February 19, 2020, when Trump strode on stage to a near-capacity crowd at the Coliseum. Like most of his campaign events, it seemed to mix the noise of a rock concert, the passion of a religious revival, and the sideshow elements of a carnival. Two supporters carried Irvin Julian, a 100-year-old World War II veteran, down the Coliseum's steep stairs to a front-row seat on stage behind Trump and in front of a boisterous crowd. One of the men carrying Julian wore a shirt that said, We Are Q on the front, and 
17-WWG-1-WGA on the back. It is a phrase adopted by the QAnon conspiracy movement that stands for, where we go one, we go all. One by one, Ducey, all four of the state's Republicans in Congress, Fan, Bowers, and Kelly Ward, the state Republican Party chairwoman, took the stage as Trump praised the state's Republican team. With your help, we're going to defeat the radical socialist Democrats, Trump said early on. We have the best economy, the most prosperous country that we've ever had, and the most powerful military anywhere in the world. Trump's 82-minute triumphal speech left his supporters delighted and his campaign confident that he was well-positioned to again win a state he had narrowly carried in 2016, when he defeated Democrat Hillary Clinton by 91,234 votes. Trump's victory that year extended Arizona's run of wins for Republicans in presidential races. The GOP won 16 of 17 presidential contests in the state beginning in 1952. Trump's electrifying optimism, shared by thousands of his supporters that day in the Coliseum, seemed rooted in political inevitability. In hindsight, Trump's prospects began dimming almost immediately after that rally. Less than a month after Trump's speech, Biden took control of his party's nomination, pitting Trump against the candidate best positioned to win in Arizona and the one Trump worried most about. The coronavirus soon exploded into a pandemic that locked Americans inside their homes, upended the political agenda, and brought a sudden end to a decade-long run of economic growth. The state's presidential preference election on March 17th and the rapidly worsening health crisis raised the first real concerns about voting and election management in Arizona, and they largely came from Democrats. By then, COVID-19 was beginning to spark fear across the country, and the White House had called for a 15-day national quarantine to halt the virus. Democrats moved their final presidential debate to Washington, D.C., from Phoenix, because of the widening crisis. The day before the election, Senator Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat from Arizona, texted Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, asking her to delay the election, according to records obtained by the Republic. The two have known each other for years and served together in the state legislature. Cinema sent Hobbs a link to a Twitter post by a political website that said polling sites could be hazardous during a pandemic. At the time, little was known about the virus and its spread. Some feared shared items, such as pens, could help spread the coronavirus. File a request to the AZ Supreme Court, ASAP, asking you to postpone, Cinema texted. This is what Ohio just did. You can file a special action right now. Who is this? Hobbs responded in a text. Kirsten, I would file a special action now. We do not want to be the state that violated the 15-day effort to stop the virus. The governor has been very slow to move on every precaution. That is his choice, I guess. But you do not have to be like that. You can do what needs to be done. I am going to say the election should be postponed publicly very soon. Hobbs responded, Understood. 
Maricopa County recorder Adrian Fontes, a Democrat, wanted to mail ballots to every voter in the primary because of the coronavirus. Neither change happened, but for Republicans who didn't have a primary election, both ideas raised concerns about voting. The GOP-dominated Maricopa County Board of Supervisors had taken greater responsibility for management from Fontes in 2019, especially on election day operations and emergency issues. But the state's far-right figures didn't view board members as reliable allies if there was to be a battle over results. Meanwhile, Trump had his own worries in Arizona. In May 2020, the president held a meeting in the Roosevelt Room in the White House to discuss the state of play in Arizona. Trump was worried that Senator Martha McSally, a Republican, was losing to challenger Mark Kelly, a Democrat, and could drag him down as well, those familiar with the discussion said. The president wondered whether the GOP should run someone other than the incumbent against Kelly, a well-known retired astronaut. Then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, had joined the conversation. He made it clear he stood by McSally. The GOP ticket had other worries, too. On July 1st, Vice President Mike Pence flew to Phoenix to assure the public that Arizona would have enough ventilators to manage the rising COVID-19 caseload. Privately, Pence had other matters on his mind. Away from the news cameras, Inside a conference room in the Lincoln J. Ragsdale Executive Terminal at the Phoenix airport, Pence asked how the campaign was preparing for November. What is your plan for absentee voting? Are you guys ready for any of the changes that would come of COVID, Pence asked, according to someone familiar with the conversation. People on hand told the vice president that 80% of Arizona's electorate routinely vote by mail. It startled Pence who was following up on concerns Trump had raised because other states, such as Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, were expanding mail-based voting because of the pandemic. Election officials in key 2020 swing states made significant changes to their election systems. For example, Nevada sent every registered voter a mail-in ballot for its summer primary. Several Pennsylvania counties including those in the Democratic-heavy Philadelphia area, extended the postmark deadline for that state's August primary. By comparison, Arizona had a long-standing mail-in system popular with all voters. Pence learned Arizona has signature verification and other security provisions in place. Arizona Republicans assured Pence they were comfortable with the state's early voting system and would keep our eye on Adrian Fontes. Ducey expounded on voting in Arizona during an August 5th public appearance at the White House with Trump at his side. They discussed their management of the pandemic. Trump groused about mailing ballots to voters in Nevada. Ducey defended the widespread practice in his state. It will be easy to vote. 78% of the citizens already vote by mail in Arizona. But we've been doing this since 1992, Ducey said. So, over the course of decades, we've established a system that works and can be trusted. When the cameras were gone, Trump seemed pleased with the governor's answer. The president exuberantly asked Ducey if his state needed any additional help. 
but the August primary created more anxiety for Republicans. Democratic turnout matched the GOP's, and after Trump's attacks on mail-in voting, many Republicans held on to their ballots until the last moment before dropping them off at the polls. One GOP figure said the daily mailed-in returns of Republicans' early votes had fallen off a cliff. Trump's team on the ground in Arizona was alarmed. During voting periods, both parties focus get-out-the-vote efforts on people who have not yet cast their ballots. The longer reliable voters held their ballots, the more the parties would have to use their scarce time and money to try to convince them to participate. Trump always had another unique problem in Arizona that would cost him, his feud with the late Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. McCain forged a bond with Arizona voters over his almost 36 years in office. He won all 11 House, Senate, and presidential races that he ran in the state. In 2016, McCain received more votes in Arizona than Trump did. Trump's broadsides against McCain, extending even after his death, didn't matter to most Republican voters. But they did matter to some, and in a close race, it had an outsized impact. Beginning in the early days of his presidential run in 2015 and continuing into the final months of the 2020 election, Trump attacked McCain in personal terms. The attacks cost Trump support among women, moderate Republicans, and independent voters who respected McCain and found the attacks unpresidential. For more than a year ahead of the election, political pollsters and experts warned that Trump was in danger of losing Arizona in part as support eroded among these key constituencies, especially in parts of Phoenix and its suburbs where the late senator had dominated his races. Despite the warnings, Trump kept up the attacks. At one point, Trump personally asked Ducey to help keep the senator's widow, Cindy McCain, neutral in the race, people familiar with the request said. A person close to Cindy McCain said the governor never asked her to withhold an endorsement in the race. A spokesman for the governor would not characterize Ducey's conversations with McCain, saying they were private. Though Trump's campaign hoped to keep her on the sidelines, they sensed she was moving in the wrong direction, someone familiar with the strategy recalled, and that's going to be a problem for us. In September, The Atlantic magazine published a story citing unnamed sources that said Trump complained when flags were lowered in observance of McCain's death in 2018. What the f*** are we doing that for? Guy was a f***ing loser, Trump said, according to The Atlantic. The president denied The Atlantic's story, although other media outlets substantiated some of the remarks attributed to Trump. Three weeks later, Cindy McCain publicly endorsed Biden. Trump responded with a tweet saying, Never a fan of John. Cindy can have Sleepy Joe. Democrats followed her announcement with an ad blitz that put her words on screens across the country, especially in Arizona. The Arizona Republican Party later censured Cindy McCain. In a series of Saturday video conferences from their homes in the final weeks before the election, Ducey and his team advised top staffers in Trump's campaign to maximize their visits to the battleground state with appearances outside of Phoenix. Trump and Pence visited eight cities other than Phoenix in the final month 
in an effort to build a rural firewall. Ducey's team suggested Trump call into country radio shows and talk about how his policies affect their jobs, their pocketbooks, and their families. One person familiar with the calls said Trump's political team knew Arizona was going to be tough. While Trump, Pence, and their surrogates zipped in and out of Arizona to try to shore up support, Biden and his running mate, Kamala Harris, barely visited. The GOP campaign rallies left Republicans fired up about the prospects and poorly prepared for an election loss. Hours after the polls closed on Election Day, Fox News made an aggressive but ultimately correct call that Biden had won Arizona. Four hours later, the Associated Press followed suit. Arizona was the first state projected to fall from Trump's winning 2016 coalition, and it raised the specter of further losses in states such as Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. All of those states, plus Georgia, eventually did flip to Biden, but it wasn't immediately clear that it would happen. Trump responded to the quick Arizona call in an overnight news conference from the East Room of the White House that effectively gave license to his supporters to cast the election as stolen. This is a fraud on the American public, Trump said at 2.30 a.m. November 4th to a cheering crowd. Frankly, we did win this election, so our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of the nation. The president said he wanted all voting to stop, and said his campaign would be headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Instead, the Trump campaign leaned heavily on officials at Fox News, hoping to undo their Arizona projection. In the days after the quick call, Ducey's 2018 deputy campaign manager walked conservative host Sean Hannity and two senior executives with Fox News through scenarios that indicated why the state remained within Trump's reach. The dossier gave a similar briefing to the Trump campaign. While Trump could not fathom how periodic updates could shift the race so dramatically in Arizona, campaign insiders were long accustomed to close races and results that changed over days as ballots were counted. Arizona counts its mailed-in ballots first, and fewer Republicans sent in early ballots in 2020. Instead, they dropped them off at the polls. Those votes were tabulated last, after the Election Day voters' tallies. In 2018, Cinema won her Senate seat after six days of counting. In 2016, U.S. Congressman Andy Biggs, a Republican from Arizona, won his first primary election by 16 votes after a recount shifted only a few dozen votes over 17 days. Biggs was now one of the leading skeptics of Arizona's results. After the quick call for Biden in Arizona on November 3rd, Raucous protesters gathered outside the building where Maricopa County officials counted the ballots. By then, some Trump supporters suggested, falsely, that election officials provided them Sharpie pens that could bleed through their ballots and eliminate their votes. It was a conspiracy theory amplified in conservative circles, including by Eric Trump, the president's son. 
For people like Fontes and Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone, it was not a moment to explain the intricacies of ballot markings. They feared violence. Dozens of people, some clearly carrying firearms, swarmed the parking lot area outside the county's election offices. Mindful of the deadly clash in 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, Penzone put several armed response teams inside the building and had dozens of other deputies in the area on standby to protect the systems, the ballots, the people, everything in there. Fontes, the county recorder, called it a necessary response to a charged situation. At one point, the angry crowd pulled an election worker into their unprotected area. This person literally had to get physically wrestled away from a group of them and pulled back into the building, Fontes remembered. It was in my head that there would be casualties. It was in my head that we would have to be cleaning blood out of the warehouse because they were ready. They were armed. They came to assault my staff. Protests went on for days with U.S. Congressman Paul Gosar, a Republican from Arizona, fueling accusations of a stolen election. Alex Jones, a conspiracy monger who called the 2012 massacre of children at an elementary school in Connecticut a giant hoax, used a megaphone to exhort protesters to maintain their fight for Trump. The sheriff's office has spent an estimated $1.2 million on law enforcement efforts tied to the election and ballot review, including on demonstrations and protection efforts. The tab may not yet be final. While Trump signaled the beginning of a drawn-out fight in the hours after the election, McSally, the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, all but disappeared from public view. McSally didn't formally concede her race for days, but by November 9th, several of her key campaign staff were vacationing in Mexico. She wound up losing to Kelly by 78,806 votes. When the presidential ballots were fully counted on November 14th, just 10,457 votes, fewer than the number of people who fit in the Coliseum, separated Biden from Trump. The 0.3 percentage point difference made it the tightest presidential race in state history. It was a bitter disappointment, but it wasn't a complete loss for Republicans. The GOP maintained its hold on the state house, and Arizona's four Republicans in Congress were re-elected. Republicans accepted those results, made in the same election that delivered Trump's loss. But Republicans loyal to Trump could not accept his defeat. Trump supporters across the country bombarded Arizona election officials and lawmakers with staggering numbers of emails, voicemails, and text messages. Like Trump, many voters could not reconcile the energy of his campaign with the quick call for Biden and the ever-tightening margins in Arizona. Democratic gains in traditionally red Maricopa County fueled suspicions that Trump's loss owed more to cheating rather than his limited appeal. State Representative Shauna Bolick, a Republican from Phoenix, said she received 57,000 emails in the first two months after the election, and still gets some. At one point early on, Bowers' secretary told him the office received more than 20,000 emails and 10,000 voicemails each day. 
after receiving 9,000 text messages at one point, now Senator Paul Boyer, a Republican from Glendale, got another phone number. The messages often maintained fraud tainted the election, and Democrats and their allies were covering it up. Many were vulgar, some were threatening. It is criminal for state legislators to certify a fraudulent election, one message to Bauer said. Rusty's going to prison, another email said. 80 million patriots will make sure of this. Fix this mess of an election now. Do not let the people who committed obvious fraud, intimidation, threaten and lie, and who did not win into our White House, read another. The din included more than just Trump supporters, lawmakers said. In all my time in office, I've never seen the magnitude or type of people telling me their concerns about the election, said State Senator J.D. Mesnard, a Republican from Chandler. Many of them have been from far-off places, said House Majority Leader Ben Toma, a Republican from Peoria. It's safe to say there's been a ton of pressure to do something. One thing that set Arizona apart from other close states was the trajectory of the race. In Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Biden staged come-from-behind victories. Trump drew closer in Arizona's initial count before falling short. Trump's comeback may have given supporters a sense that another push would have changed the outcome, at least in one state. Trump and Giuliani zeroed in on people in Arizona who could still make a push. It wouldn't be Ducey who had shown little interest in raising doubts about the election. And it wouldn't be Hobbs, the Democratic Secretary of State, who defended it on national television. The president and his lawyer targeted Bowers and Pham, the Republican heads of the legislature. The weekend before Thanksgiving, a top White House aide called around, looking for cell phone numbers for both. Those close to Pham said she felt squeezed by the most conservative members in her caucus, She was preparing for the holidays and didn't want to discuss the election. She seemed to want to put off talking to the president and his surrogates. When the White House came calling, Fan needed a strategy. What are we going to do? They're putting pressure on me. The national folks want to have fact-finding committees to find out about the fraud in Arizona, Bowers remembered Fan saying. She said, they're trying to get in touch with me and we've got to make sure we're on the same page. They never had a chance. Right after he hung up the phone with Fan, Bowers received the call from Trump and Giuliani while sitting in his Prius. By itself, the call was memorable for Bowers. It became amusingly so when he needed to search the small screen on his cell phone to find his lawyer's contact information for the president. A natural raconteur, Bowers joked to Trump and Giuliani he might have a story for his grandkids one day that he accidentally hung up on the president. Trump just busted out laughing, Bowers remembered. He said, that's funny. Then Bowers really did accidentally hang up. The White House called him back, and Bowers and Giuliani shared a laugh. Bowers needed some levity. While Arizona's election stirred national passions, Bowers, 69, was privately tending to his dying daughter. Her liver was failing, and she was rejected for an organ transplant. Inside his house, and later in a hospital, Bowers saw his daughter's life slipping away. 
Bowers documented the eventful period, as he routinely does in his handwritten journal through pages and pages of tight cursive writing. It is a distinctive practice for a man with many interests. Bowers's weathered face betrays his love of the outdoors, but perhaps his greatest passion is art. He paints and has sold sculptures. At least once, Bowers passed time in the often mundane setting of the legislature by building a miniature Pinewood Derby car for his grandson on his desk during breaks. Bowers' call with Trump and Giuliani revealed two of his more obvious traits. Bowers can be pleasant, but he's no pushover. Rusty is a cowboy, said one Capitol insider, in a reference to his independent nature. Fan, 67, grew up in Prescott, one of Arizona's most conservative areas. Decades ago, she started a transportation business that puts up guardrails to keep motorists safe. She was elected to municipal government around the Prescott area where politicking didn't overshadow problem solving. She brought political pragmatism to a legislative seat at the State House, where she has served for a decade, the past two terms as President of the Senate. Fan, too, has a life outside politics. She likes to golf and cook. She's known to bring homemade pies to friends and is part of a dinner club. Her agreeable nature often leaves her in the middle of the warring factions of her Republican caucus. Her confidants in the State House include lobbyists from both political camps who have worked with her for years. Her philosophy on the job is, we're in this thing together, we've got to pick up the trash, we've got to do it, let's work together, let's figure things out, one Democratic lobbyist friend said. If the ballot review sometimes felt like a political crucible, it also gave Fan a national political identity. But at the State House, she had one goal retain her role as Senate president. Unlike Bowers, who won his leadership post despite the misgivings of his party's far-right members, Fan owed her position to the more conservative members of her chamber. Her friend, former state Senator Steve Pierce, a Republican from Prescott and a relative moderate, lost his title as Senate president after the 2012 elections to then-Senator Andy Biggs. Pierce spent four lonely years out of power. Her friends say it was a loss Fan didn't want to repeat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Gaggle. This is part one of a five-part series. Before you go, please rate and review our show and share this episode with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Luberto. There are lots of supporting pictures, videos, text messages, and documents on our website, azcentral.com. We invite you to subscribe to AZ Central and read the Arizona Republic. <laughs>